0: If you would please open down your Bibles to Nehemiah 13. From there we will go to Matthew 21. Reverse the order that's in the bulletin just to keep you alert. Nehemiah 13, Matthew 21. If you would please stand that you might give visible expression to your reverence for God's word. The grass outside withers and the flowers will fade away. But the word of the living God will endure forever. So God's people ought to strive to hear and heed it faithfully and that together for this is the word of the lord Nehemiah 13:1 On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them yet our God turned the curse into a blessing As soon as the people heard the law they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent Now before this Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest's. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. From the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now please turn very briefly to Matthew twenty-one. Two simple verses. Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That's Father, reading God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we've just read from Your Word, but we confess that in our sin, our weakness, and our unbelief, apart from the work of Your Spirit within our hearts, these words would fall simply to the ground. But we recognize that the Spirit is life-giving. We recognize that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. And we believe it is the intention of the Holy Spirit to bless the reading, and especially the preaching of the Word of God, that faith would be worked in our hearts. And so we ask that You would do that now, for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit— We pray these things with confidence in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that makes the church most beautiful is arguably that which also makes the church the most frustrating. We are constantly being conformed into the image of Christ. The beauty of the church is found in Christ... And the fact that we are constantly growing into His image. The frustration, however, lies within us, and it's in the fact that we constantly need to grow. Like a home that has been well cleaned the day before company arrives, and many of you know that feeling. We rejoice in the beauty, and we also know that not long from now we'll have to clean it again. Sin's kind of like dirt. It sort of finds its way back into those spaces that have been cleansed, not simply our homes, but our hearts and our lives. This is why in the 1500s, a wonderful phrase was coined to describe the church, both its beauty and its frustration. And that phrase is the church always reforming. You've heard it. It's rare that you can use a Latin phrase and get away with it, but this is probably one that in many reformed churches you can. Semper Reformanda, Reformanda S. The church is always in need of reformation. And that's not only true back in the 1500s, it's also what we see in our lives today. Surely our lives are in need of reformation, but it's clearly what we see in the text of Nehemiah 13. The people of God, who are holy and precious in the sight of God, are yet still in further need of reformation. But thankfully, God's church is always reforming. You have an outline It can help us to walk through the text. We'll consider our first point now, remembering the sins of the past. Today's sermon begins by looking, in a certain sense, in the rear-view mirror, a little bit of a two-step approach or gaze. This is the same day, if you look at the chapter before and remember from two weeks back, it is the same day as the dedication of the city walls in Jerusalem. As you learn in just a few verses, Nehemiah himself was gone for a while, and he has come back, back from Babylon. Babylon. Remember that he was on leave of absence from Jerusalem to go back and serve the king, and now he is serving in his second term as governor in Babylon. And herein lies the problem, Israel, though having much to rejoice about, and we'll focus on some of that more next week. On this day, they are dedicating the wall, and not only do the people sing and celebrate, they also open up God's word. And there, in the word of God, they make a startling discovery of a sin from the past. There are people, according to the word of God, that should never, ever, ever enter the house of God. The Hebrew is just that forceful. It doesn't simply say it with one word. Uh, It says it uh, with an intensified construction. They should never, ever, ever enter the house of God. And those people are listed by name. They are sort of called out, if you will. They are the Ammonites and the Moabites. If you remember Israel's history, This is a reference to Numbers chapter 22, and Israel's not only coming up out of the land, they're now making their way out of the land of Egypt, they're now making their way into Canaan. And along the way, they engage these people, they come to the land of the Ammonites and the Moabites, but rather than being greeted and assisted by them on the way into Canaan, rather the Ammonites and the Moabites resist them and oppose them. But it goes downhill even more from there. They don't simply stand there in opposition to them. They bring in a hired gun. They go and look for a man named Balaam, who is somewhere between an unrighteous prophet and a witch. And they hire Balaam to come and use his powers of divination, of sorcery, to come out and to put a curse upon the people of Israel. But then God intervened in the story. Not only would God not listen to Balaam, in fact, he did the very opposite. The text is beautifully worded. God turned the curse into a blessing. And he's not simply referred to as God, but as our God. Our God turned his curse into a blessing. That for the people of Israel. But what happened to the Ammonites and the Moabites and even Balaam, Not only did God reverse the curse upon Israel, He then placed the very curse upon the Ammonites and the Moabites. And that curse abides down to this very day in Nehemiah 13. The Ammonites and the Moabites should never enter the house of God. Now when Israel makes this discovery, and this is very, in many ways, it's a lot like the Christian life. Uh, We have a tendency to forget. We don't always remember. It's not simply a guy thing. It's a sin thing. It's an everyone thing. And so when Israel rediscovers that this is what the word of God had said, how do they react? Well, they react, at least at this moment, exactly as they should. And you see that in verse 3. They immediately separated from all Israel, all of those who are of foreign descent. I want to be very clear here. We've gone over this before. I want to highlight it again at this moment. This is not racial segregation. This is spiritual segregation. The Ammonites and the Moabites had spiritually opposed the people of God, and for that, a curse of separation was pronounced upon them at that time. will come back to that thought later. But the theme that we should notice here and elsewhere is that God is constantly separating the clean from the unclean. The holy from the unholy. And remember, what it is, As particularly in view here, it's not simply a question of the people of Israel and the Ammonites and Moabites. It really comes down to the holiness of God himself. The character and the presence of God. The issue is who can come in to the presence of God? Who can enter in to the temple of God? Who may serve in his holy presence? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? At that time in Israel's history not the Moabites and the Ammonites. Thus, the people of God were reforming, according to the word of God, a very biblical idea. Let's take a step forward now, no longer simply gazing in the rearview mirror, looking at sins of the past. Let's take a moment now and sort of look around the car and consider some of their sins in the present. For the next section takes our eyes off the past and fixes our gaze upon past. The present. Nehemiah has been, been made aware on his return to Jerusalem that something abominable is taking place, uh, not simply regarding the Ammonites and the Moabites and the question of whether or not they should enter into the courts of God, uh, but something uh, even more disturbing is taking place. There's a mention of a man here named Elishib. Eliashib is called out by name as well as a man named Tobias. If you've been with us a while, you should recognize both of these names, especially Tobias. Eliashib, however, is a priest, if not the high priest at the moment. What's significant about that is that if anyone should know the rules and how this temple thing is supposed to work, who can come in and who should not, it would be the priest, certainly the high priest. But Eliashib at this point is a failed priest. He is a compromised priest. He is one who's played favors with local politicians to his own personal advantage and gain. But not simply has he played the fiddle for the crowd. He in particular has preferenced a man named Tobiah. And if you know Nehemiah by now, you've met this man and you have nothing good to say about him. We've met Tobiah before. He is a snake in the book of Nehemiah, sort of like uh, this book's version of Gollum. He keeps showing back up and never for the right reasons. We encountered him several times already in the book. Tobiah is of mixed descent, both Jew and Gentile. And though his name means, good is the Lord, his actions speak louder than his words. This is the same Tobiah who actually, ironically and sadly, has a lot in common with Balaam. For earlier in the book, not only did he oppose the rebuilding of the wall, he also pronounced curses and taunts upon Israel, Nehemiah, and those who were doing the rebuilding. This Tobiah stood in opposition against the ministry of Nehemiah, and again taunted and threatened Israel with curses. And now that Tobiah has a house in the temple, that kind of bad. It's terrible. He now has a guest house in the storehouse in the courts of God. It's hard to overstate not simply how offensive that is, but how personally offensive it would be to Nehemiah. For Nehemiah, who was gone and left when Israel was at a little bit of a peak spiritually and all seemed to be well to go back and to attend his duties to Artaxerxes, the king, he now comes back to find not only the Ammonites and Moabites granted granted access to the outer courts, Tobias has a house, a guest house, in the temple of God. This would be like a man coming home from a trip and finding another man in his bedroom. It's a serious sin. It is a grievous sin. It is appalling, upholy, and unrighteous. Verse 5 says that, not does Tobias have a chamber? He has a very large chamber, something of a penthouse within God's house. And Eliashib, the high priest, is the one who made it and gave him access. But not only that, in order for Eliashib to move Tobias in, Eliashib had to move the belongings of God out. God was kicked out of his house, if you will, so that an unclean man that curses Israel named Tobias could move in. Eliashib took out the grain, the incense, the vessels of wine, frankincense, the oil, and Tobias' stuff stood in its place. Imagine how appalled Nehemiah would be. You should be a little bit offended as well, especially since all of this took place while Nehemiah is away. Notice verse 6. We have a little phrase that we use sometimes. When the cat's away, Israel messes up really badly. The mice have been busy devouring the things of God, profaning the house of God, breaking the rules of God, playing lightly with the holiness of God. How do you think Nehemiah ought to respond? How would a righteous response look? Well, Nehemiah's response of one of anger, in fact, we are told that he is not simply angry, he is very angry. Notice verse 8, he has a moment of white hot rage. He's be, he becomes uh, what we might say indignant with righteous indignation. He comes back. He goes into the courts where Tobiah has set up his house and where Eliashib has thrown out the things of God and Nehemiah becomes quite angry. He begins to toss Tobiah's stuff out violently, throwing all of his belongings out of the chamber like a scene we'll see elsewhere in Scripture and refer to in a moment. Here is Nehemiah in white hot rage tossing all of Tobiah's stuff out of the courts of God's temple onto the streets. It's like a scene in the movie you've seen 4,000 times when a couple breaks up and it didn't go so well. And the reason you know is because you have the view down from the street looking up at the apartment building, and there goes his stuff out the window. This is like that moment. Nehemiah is fit to be tied. The language of throwing is actually quite forceful, if not uh, violent. Nehemiah is white hot. Nehemiah is red hot. But why? Is it because Nehemiah is simply personally offended by the fact that it's this Timaeus who had injured him in the past? I don't think the answer is yes. What Nehemiah is offended by is that the holiness of God has been desecrated. That place that God set apart for his person, his presence, his property has been desecrated Not simply have the rules of God been broken, the righteousness of God has been played down, and Nehemiah cannot abide such sin. No man, no man should be living in this chamber. And if any man were to, Tobias is the last on the planet that arguably should. The enemies of Nehemiah and the city of God now unrighteously dwelling in the temple storehouse And unfortunately, there is a little bit more. If you look down to verse 10, you love to say it's getting better, but unfortunately, we're in a little bit of a downward turn in the V. Verse 10 highlights not simply the sin of two individuals, but now the community of God's people in mass. Once again, they were neglecting the Levites and the temple servants, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the workers What is so sad and offensive about this is if you go back to the last chapter and just before it, the people of God just stood and made a voluntary vow that they would never do this, that they would never forsake the temple of God and they would never forsake the workers of that temple. Eliashib was favoring Tobiah, a secular politician, and neglecting the clergymen, those who were to serve in the temple of God. And so bad had the condition become that the Levites bailed. Each of them, we are told, fled back to his field. Why? Because they'd been cut off from their daily provisions. They were starving as they went back to their normal work. They went home. They left the holy for the common. And so, Nehemiah, a question is asked here by Nehemiah in verse 11. It's a really great question. It's a very appropriate question at this point. Why is the house of God forsaken? It's a really important question. And piercing question. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. It's a good question, although a piercing one. Translate it not simply from Nehemiah's day, but into our own. Why is the work of God sometimes neglected by the people of God? Well, the answer arguably is because, if we are willing to admit it, sometimes the world seems to offer us a better deal. Something that's a little bit more satisfying than serving God. Or perhaps, as the old hymn put it well and poetically, it's because our hearts are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's what happened in the days of Nehemiah. Nehemiah jumps into the waters of Israel's depravity, like a lifeguard on a rescue mission that will not be deterred. A fearless leader who will not only be deterred, he calls Israel to repentance and faith and to action. But again, we can ask, and this is an optimistic moment, now having been called out and in some ways, several ways unmasked, how will Israel respond when Nehemiah confronts them about Tobias shacking in the courthouse of God, and the Levites and the temple workers being neglected by the people of God. Well, it says very clearly, they not only responded, they repented. They were formed according to the word of God. If you look at verse 12, they bring back what ought to be in the storehouses. Nehemiah once again appoints faithful men who will be in charge of stewarding to make sure that the temple is not neglected, nor its servants. In a certain sense, you might say, it is that day of cleaning house. Sin is swept out, and righteousness comes flowing back into its space. What does repentance look like? Real repentance in the life of a person. Real repentance in the life of God's people, collectively. Well, it looks actually a lot like this. The actual fruit of repentance is seen in what they do. This is a true repentance. It is a lively repentance as Israel responds in the right way, and we might, in a certain sense, say, praise God for reformation within their hearts. But if you've been with us now as we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, uh, do you get perhaps just a little bit weary sometimes of the ups and the downs? Or the circle that it seems to sometimes run, like the book of Judges, where Israel gets in trouble, and God brings judgment, and they repent, and so he restores, and sometimes the life of God's people seems like a broken record. And in fact, it's not just the stories in the text that can sometimes seem like a broken record. It can be the stories of our own lives that sometimes seem to run that same track over and over and over. That's why we need the third point. Remembering God's goodness and always reforming. We've begun to kind of already begin to ask it, but let's ask it even more clearly. What do we have in common with them? What do we have in common with the people of God In Nehemiah 13. Well, arguably, we have several things in common, but one, to be clear, is that the law had a way of exposing and unmasking them, just as the law has a way of exposing and unmasking us. It reminds us of the sins of our past, and it throws pure light, undeniable light, on the sins of our present. It shows it's not simply the people of Israel in the days of Nehemiah, whose heart's are prone to wonder, Lord, they feel it, but just as much our own hearts, and therefore how much we desperately need the grace of God. And that leads us then to something else that we truly have in common with them. What did they ultimately need? What they needed was a Savior. In this story, that Savior comes to them, that deliverance comes to them by way of Nehemiah, the one who is with them, but left. And then comes again to bring further reform to the church. Nehemiah at this moment in history is the hero, lower letter H, that God has raised up in those days. And in many ways, the virtue and piety of Nehemiah is found in what he has done, but just as much in what he prays. Look at verse 14 in our text. It's a beautiful prayer, but I wonder what you think about it. When Nehemiah prays, at the end of this section, he has two more prayers like it in the remainder of the chapter, but we'll get to those next week. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. I would imagine you may struggle a little bit with that prayer. How often do you say to God, God, don't forget the good things I've done, and remember me on payday. We don't tend to talk that way. And we might even struggle with, uh, what is Nehemiah doing or saying here, uh, praying that God would not forget his virtue and the good deeds that he has done. Even uh, within the commentaries on this, there's a bit of a wrestling, a struggle with this prayer. The question, to frame it pointedly, is whether or not this prayer is self-righteous and self-applauding. Is Nehemiah really saying, God, look at me and how righteous I am and record, reward me, for all that I have done. I don't believe so. Actually, I actually think that would be the wrong way to look at the prayer. It is far better than that. Nehemiah asked God to remember not simply him and his good deeds, but their purpose and their effect. What Nehemiah is most after is not a sure reward for himself, but a sure reformation in the hearts of God's people. He wants God's people to follow through on their vows. That is the ultimate goal of his prayer. He wants God's people to remember the holiness of God's temple and to elevate it above all other things, elevating God himself above all things. He wants them to remember these things that they continue to forget. Israel, like us, had a horrible problem with remembering. And when we think about it, the same really is true for us. Sometimes it's hard to remember, and sometimes, really honest, we don't want to remember. Sometimes, when you read the Word of God, it becomes, for us, something of an inconvenient truth, albeit undeniable. Israel had a horrible problem remembering, remembering and obeying. And instead of always reforming, we might play with the phrase, Instead, sadly, uh, they were always deforming, back into sin, back into their old ways, But as Nehemiah is aware that people forget, here's a point, don't lose it, as Nehemiah is aware that people often forget, he prays to the God who never does. And he says, Lord, remember. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a friend that never forgot what you said? Those things that were important to you, that always remembered the promises that they've made and never broke them? One who would always do righteous and never commit sin. One that would always abide in chesed, which is actually Nehemiah's word for good deeds. Remember my chesed, my faithfulness. This is steadfast love. It is Nehemiah's way of saying that he has striven to keep the covenant, but he prays to a God who remembers and who always keeps the covenant. In fact, the word used of good deeds, chesed, is usually almost exclusively used of God himself. God who is always faithful, Nehemiah may, in a small sense, draw attention to what he has done, but he draws greater attention to who God is and what God has done. It is God who is the perfect rememberer. It is God who is the perfect keeper of his word. But a question abides. How long shall this broken record play? How long shall we walk the same sin-stained trail of Israel deforming and reforming and deforming and reforming? We're near the end of Nehemiah. This is the final chapter In many ways, it's also the final stage. For the point in history that we're at now is Israel now back in the land and the temple rebuilt. The city walls restructured. This final chapter is the chapter that abides until even the coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah. In many ways, this may be something like a broken record, but it is one long song awaiting the song of the Savior. Awaiting one whose virtue will far exceed that of Nehemiah, and not simply his virtue, beloved, but even his rage against sin. For when Jesus comes, not simply into the world, as the righteous keeper of the law, he also, like Nehemiah, comes again to his temple. And when he comes to his temple in Matthew 21, what do we see but Jesus they're confronting a very similar reality that unrighteousness and uncleanness have entered into that holy sacred space where God abides. Nehemiah gets angry and he overturns tables and he tosses stuff out. When Jesus comes to his temple, he also gets angry and he overturns tables and he tosses stuff out, but Nehemiah's rage was peppered with sin. Nehemiah's righteousness was with a lowercase r. Nehemiah's faithfulness was nothing in comparison to the faithfulness of Jesus, the Lord of the covenant, the Lord of the temple, the Lord who remembers. It is true that the church is always reforming because we're not yet there. But Jesus was perfect in his holiness, perfect in his righteousness, even perfectly right in his anger. But he was not simply the Lord of the word and the Lord of the temple, he's also Lord of the cross. For What Israel needed in order to end this broken cycle of broken record is a savior that would come and once and for all wipe their sins away. Fix the broken record. Unite them to himself in a righteousness that far exceeds the righteousness of Nehemiah or any other keeper of the law. For as we said earlier in the service, all that the law demands, the gospel freely gives because God remembers his people, because God remembers his promise, because God is the one who remembers his own chesed. And he remembers it perfectly in the death and the resurrection of his son. What do we most have in common with the people in Nehemiah 13? A need for Jesus. And if you have him, beloved, your life is not a broken record. In fact, it's not a constant rise and fall of predictable dips and frustrating ascents. In fact, the very idea of the church always reforming means not that we remain in a static position in our growth personally and collectively, but actually God is conforming us beautifully, slowly, sweetly conforming us into the image of Christ. Some of us experience great frustration in our Christian lives because we're not yet where we ought to be. And then at the same time, we could be overwhelmed with God's grace that we are not today what we once were. There should be like a thousand loud amens hiding inside this room. They don't have to hide. The church is always reforming. He who began a good work in his church will carry it to the end, all the way to completion, to the day of Christ Jesus. If Nehemiah teaches us much about the people of God, it teaches us even more about the God of those people that we who desperately needed a Savior were given one in Jesus, what they looked forward to, we now look back to, and we remember, as we were about to do in just a few moments. And yes, we grant that it is sometimes frustrating. It is, isn't it? It is sometimes frustrating that we are not yet what we one day will be, and that we are always in need of greater conformity to the Son of God, by the Word of God. But if I may encourage you with a final line. Please, beloved, do not fix your eyes on that which is frustrating, but rather upon that which is, and that is who you are in Christ. Because that is what makes you truly beautiful. That's what makes His church truly beautiful. And God did make a promise that He has never forgotten that by His Word, His sacrament, and even prayer, He will continue in us and at times in spite of us to conform us as His church to the image of Christ. Who are we? Semper Reformanda, Reformanda S. The Reformed Church, always reforming. Let's pray. Our great hope, O Lord, is that when we lay down at the end of this day for rest, that we will be more holy in your sight, perhaps even our own, than when we woke up this morning to do the things of God. We confess, O Lord, that there is much that abides within us that we are not pleased with. Some of us, O Lord, are greatly frustrated with our lack of progress in the Christian life and wish that we were more and more above and beyond certain sins and struggles. And at the same time, O Lord, if we stand and we allow ourselves by your word to look in the rearview mirror, to contemplate where we stand, and to even, by faith, look to the future and what you are yet to do in us. How can we not be encouraged? Our God has been faithful. We have forgotten many things. We have broken many promises, even transgressed your word. But we are united to a Savior who has done none of those things, and he has remembered us in our affliction. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see the church, the body of Christ, for what it is in Christ, righteous, holy, beloved, and beautiful in him. And that by your word and sacrament, we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to conform us to that glorious image. And when the accuser whispers in our ears, when the Tobiases of our life have somehow snuck into our chambers, we pray, O Lord, that your word and spirit would cast the darkness out, would silence the whispers, and we would remember the word, even the promises of our God, that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we pray in his name. Amen.